Well, we are in the sixth and final part of a series that we've been calling Wandering. And if you're brand new with us today, I wanted to catch you up by showing you a graphic that we've been using throughout this series. See, what we've been doing is tracking with a nation of people called Israel and the Israelites. And we are looking at a time in their history where they were literally wandering in the wilderness. You say that they were in between normals. Their old normal was slavery in Egypt. Their new normal was going to be freedom in a new country in Canaan. But for 40 years, they were caught in the wilderness, wandering, waiting to get into that time, which would be their new normal. And what we've been seeing is that there is a lot of comparisons with the nation of Israel to our situation and to our circumstances today. You see, our old normal was prior to the COVID quarantine, and our new normal will be whenever quarantine restrictions are lifted, as much as they ever will be. But in between there, where we are right now is we're in a season that we've never really experienced before. And at times, it's felt probably like we are just wandering, waiting for that new normal to start. But the thing is, we don't want you to miss out on the opportunities that there are in the midst of a season of wandering. And so here's what we've said. We've said that there are lessons to learn in the wilderness, in the wandering, that will make us stronger when we're out of it. And that's so, so true. We've seen so many different lessons as we've tracked with the nation of Israel. Uh, we've learned what it means for God to deliver us. Uh, we've talked about dependence on God and what that looks like. We've talked about how come the glory of God is so important and for us to remember it. We've talked about what to do with anger and how to become more patient. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of wrap up all these thoughts and this entire series with a message that will give us something to hold on to as we move forward. And I want to tell you that I'm really excited for this message and be able to share it with you today. In fact, my prayer this week has simply been this, Dear Lord, help me to share with your people the power and the impact that you intended with this truth. Dear Lord, please help me with your power to share this message with the power and the impact that you intended for us to take away from this truth. So it's been six weeks since we started this series. And in many ways, things are not definitely back to normal yet. And I would think that maybe in some little ways, we might even say that things are maybe worse than they were <laughs> when the series started. And it's in seasons like that where sometimes we find ourselves asking a question that happens to be our first fill-in for today. This question, where's God in all of this? 
When things seem to be out of control or out of our norm or causing us anxiety or worry or whatever, it's so easy to ask this question. It makes sense. Where's God in all of this? And for some of you who are listening or watching, I mean, honestly, you might be new to the Bible. You may be on some of the first steps towards recognizing or understanding who God is. You may have been going through seasons where you've doubted that there's a God at all. And a season like this, well, in many ways, it just can confirm your doubts. And I want you to know that as a pastor, I understand why many of us or some of us might feel that way. It has been a challenging season that we've been experiencing. But one of the things that we talk about here at North Cross that might help us unpack this question about where God is, is this, that we don't always have specific answers for every detail of life. That there are certain circumstances that we go through that we're just not going to fully grasp or know or understand what God is up to. And frankly, I think far too often, people spend too much time trying to figure out exactly what God might be up to when the truth is that there are many seasons where we're just not going to know. And while that might be true, God still does give us promises and principles that help to direct us, to help guide us, to give us something to hold on to, during these seasons where we're wondering what God is up to. And that's why I mentioned that this last message is one that is a perfect end point to this series. That it's going to give us today a truth from God that will help us with faith and with trust move forward even though we don't know what the future might hold or how long we're wandering. So let me give you a little bit of backstory to the section we're going to look at to conclude this series. I mentioned before that for 40 years, Israel was doing something. They were wandering. That was their posture. Wandering in the Sinai desert or wilderness. Now, at the time of our text, Israel is only a few months away from actually inheriting the promised land. Their wandering is almost over. And towards the end of that wandering, Israel, if you read through the book of Numbers, goes from a posture of wandering, they begin to have a posture of marching. Israel now is marching instead of wandering with a purpose, like an army. Let me explain what's going on. See, as Israel gets closer and closer to the Jordan River and to Canaan, there are nations that are inhabiting the area that's near there. And they don't want to let Israel go through. So if you read in the book of Numbers, you read about King Arid puts up resistance to the Israelite nation as they come through. But instead of reversing course or wandering some more, God directs them to go through and to engage in battle. 
and God gives them victory. As they continue to march to the promised land, we run into some fun names. King Sihon and the Amorites. Same thing. The Amorites don't want to let Israel through. God tells them to march forward. And he gives them victory over the Amorites. Then there's King Og. I mean, he just sounds like an evil king or something. King Og and the Bashanites. Same thing. They put up resistance. God says march forward. God gives them victory over their enemies. And kind of a little bit of a sidebar. It's so awesome to see that when God has a plan, that he perfectly guides his people to accomplish that plan. Well, at this point, the nation of Israel is right along the Jordan River. And there's another king and another nation. It's King Balak and the Moabites. And we're going to pick it up there in Numbers chapter 22. Here's what it says. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde, this group of people, it's talking about the Israelites. The Israelites are going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. You see, as Israel got closer to Canaan and to the Jordan River, they began to get a reputation. People began talking about this large nation that had a powerful army, but we know they had an even more powerful God. Next verse. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Bethor near the Euphrates River, in his native land. And Balak, the king, said, A people has come out of Egypt. Again, talking about the Israelites. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now, Balaam, Come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever, speaking to Balaam, whoever you curse is cursed. So let me explain what's going on here because it's kind of involved. Balak has no confidence in his Moabite army to defeat the Israelites. And so what he does kind of prior to any sort of uh, engagement with their army is he calls upon a well-known, I'm going to use the word sorcerer, named Balaam. Now, Balaam has been known to be able to um, speak to spirits. And he claimed to be able to speak to the gods. But what we know about Balaam is that he wasn't a follower of the true God. He believed in lots of gods and rejected a faith in the one and only God. But in this instance, although that might be true, God decided to use Balaam to accomplish his purposes. And as Balaam called on the gods, to curse Israel, the true God, Yahweh, speaks to Balaam instead. Chapter 22, verse 12, God said to Balaam, Do not go with these men, the men of Balak, the king. You must not put a curse on those people, the Israelites. 
because they're blessed. Now, it's interesting. As we think about this, if you read through the next verses, I don't have time to go through all of it on my own um, or on our own right now. What we find is that eventually, and it's a long story, eventually Balaam and Balak find themselves on a mountain overlooking a valley where the Israelite camp is. And Balak has paid Balaam to go ahead and to curse the Israelite nation. But when Balaam is about to curse the nation, God instead gives Balaam a message of blessing. And the words that come out of Balaam's mouth are not a curse at all. They're a message of the reality that this nation is going to grow and prosper and be fruitful. That is the nation of Israel. Well, you can just imagine how Balaam, Balak felt the king. Look at verse 11. Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? You said the exact opposite thing that I had paid you to say. I brought you to curse my enemies, but you have done nothing but bless them. Verse 12, Balaam answered, Must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? So Balak takes Balaam to the top of another mountain, overlooking the Israelite camp. Once again, he calls Balaam to put a curse on the Israelites. All that Balaam can do is to bless the Israelites. So he takes him to a third mountain. What do you think happened? Yeah, same thing. Balaam's supposed to pronounce curses on God's people. And all he can do is bless them. At this point, Balak, he is ticked off and sends Balaam back to his home country. And all I can think about is the fact that Balak was warned at the beginning. Verse 12, we looked at it before. God told Balaam right from the start, you must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. This is one of the most amazing, dramatic, goosebump-inducing sections of the entire scriptures. And I bet many of you never heard of it before. That while Israel is down in the valley, while Israel is down in the valley, this is a picture of that same mountain valley area. While the Israelite camp is down in the valley, on the mountain, there is a battle going on between God and Balak. And as you think about those Israelites in the valley, the truth of the matter is that they had a lot of difficult things that they had, had done, that there were a lot of things that they would not be proud of that they had done as a nation. But at the end of the day, there was this promise 
that God had put over the Israelite nation hundreds of years before. You see, the people in the valley, they were the children of Abraham. And Abraham was told that his family would grow to be a great nation, that they would prosper. And the reason for it was that someday a Savior would come from that nation. Now, as you think about Abraham's family and its history, I mean, there's not a lot to be proud of as you think of the time between Abraham and this moment with Balaam. We think of murder and adultery and polygamy and deception. And at one point, some parts of Abraham's family even sold a brother named Joseph into slavery. That's how they got to Egypt and this big old mess in the first place, right? And then God frees them from slavery. He promises that eventually they'll be given this new land. And as we've seen over the course of this series, that in almost every turn, when something even just minor comes up, there's complaining and grumbling and whining and anger against God and doubt. I think that if I was God, or if you were God, in a little bit of a way, I kind of feel like they would have been worth giving at least half a curse. But as we think about this section, and if we think about what happened on the mountain and in the valley, I think we come away with the truth that is so relatable to us even right now. It's our second fill-in, that no one can curse those whom God has blessed. If God has put his blessing on someone, there is nothing that can change that or no power that can come in the way of that blessing. And you see, the Israelites are in that valley. They're in the wilderness. All they can see in front of them is wilderness. All they know is wandering. What they don't see as they're camped down here is what's happening up here. That God is fighting for them. That God is with them. That God is holding true to his promises. And those whom he has blessed, nothing can curse. There's so many parallels I thought of this week to me and to you and to the situation that we're in right now. I know that in so many ways it feels like we're wandering and we don't know exactly what the future holds. And in some days, frankly, it feels a little scarier than others. We just hope for peace. We just want things to be better. And it's easy to get filled with all the things we've talked about through this series, whether that be anger or fear or frustration. And the truth of the matter is that not only in this season, but in almost every season, it's easy for us to complain to God when things aren't good. It's, it's 
easy for us to focus in on the challenges of life and in some way just be oblivious to the blessings that we have every single day. And if I was God, and if you were God, and we saw ourselves and our reaction to life and to difficulty, maybe maybe we would give us at least half a curse. And yet, no one can curse those whom God has blessed. God's blessing doesn't mean that life is always going to go great. God's blessing doesn't mean that we're not going to experience hardship or sickness. We're all, unless Jesus returns first, going to experience an earthly death. But I want you to know that even though you and I aren't blood relatives of Abraham, that God has put his blessing on you and on me. Galatians 3, Paul ties Old Testament Israel with you and me, Christians in the New Testament. And he says, Christ redeemed us. He bought us back from the curse of the law. That would be God's just and right punishment over sin. He's redeemed us from the curse of the law by himself becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Let me unpack that for a second. So there was a definite embarrassment and curse, so to speak, for anybody who would be crucified. You would be suffering amazing pain and anguish out in the public view of everyone, just even to walk by people who are being crucified. And maybe one thing you didn't know, most of the time, people were crucified without clothes, naked. For anyone hung on a pole, there would be a curse. And yet, for Jesus, it was deeper than that. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, he took our sin. He took on the sin of filthy sinners like you and me. He wore our idolatry, our complaining, our whining. He took on adultery and all of the sins of thought, word, and deed. He literally became our substitute and bore our curse. He was cursed by God because of us. But the verse continues, and he redeemed us in order. This is awesome. It ties these two sections together. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham, we talked about it already, that his family would be great, that a savior would come, that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's me. That's you. Through Christ Jesus, so that by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. 
Through Jesus' death on the cross in our place, we receive a tremendous blessing from God. By faith in him, we are given his blessing. And it does not mean that we're going to experience great earthly wealth and happiness. What it does mean is that God has promised to walk with us every step of the way. And someday, even through the valleys of this life, bring us to our heavenly home. You see, here's what we understand. Number three, Jesus received all the punishment we deserve so that we might receive all the blessing that he deserves. See, as we look into the world right now, And as we look at the circumstances in front of us, as we focus on the wandering we're in the midst of, the truth is, is that we might have that question we looked at before. Where's God in all of this? And that's how we're always going to feel when our heads are down, looking at the wilderness in front of us. But here's my encouragement to you. Look up. We're in the valley of the wilderness, like the Israelites. But look up. Look up to the mountain and see who is with you and who loves you, who has blessed you, who is fighting for you and is with you, behind and in front and in you. God is not far from us. He has put his blessing on us. And those whom God has blessed, no one can curse. So your quick application before we close today is this. When your eyes are down, that is, focusing in on the circumstances around us, fears will go up. They'll get bigger. But when we train ourselves in those moments for our eyes to go up, to realize what's happening around us, even on the mountain, then our fears have every opportunity to be minimized and to go down. It's awesome to live in the sphere of God's blessing. And in fact, at almost every service at North Cross, and maybe where you grew up as well, we receive a pronouncement of God's blessing on us. For 3,500 years, the same blessing has been spoken over God's people. And the blessing we're going to look at in just a moment, and I'm going to read, comes from this same era and these same people. In Numbers chapter 6, God told Aaron to speak this blessing upon his people. The Lord said, Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. 
In just a couple minutes, we are going to close by singing this song and this, this blessing as a song and actually having it be our closing prayer as well. But before we're done, I just wanted to point out one thing in this section. There's just some amazing imagery that connects with our message for today. It's this phrase, Lord, make his face shine on you. And when I was growing up, be honest, I didn't know what that meant. Every time I heard the pastor say it, in some weird way, I thought of God's face lighting up like some weird flashlight. But that's not at all what it means. You see, when someone turns their face to you, it means they have a relationship with you. And I want you today to think of, think of your dad. It's Father's Day. Think of your dad's face. Visualize it for a moment. Now, I want you in your mind's eye to visualize your dad's face when he was proud or happy or delighted in something you did or have done. For most of us, that's an amazing picture. And that's the imagery that we have every time we hear this blessing. May the Lord's face be delighted with you. And even if you haven't been able to experience this from an earthly father, there's an even better dad, our heavenly father, that all of us by Jesus get to experience the look of his delight. Not because we're so delightful, but because Jesus was our substitute. And because of him, we have God's blessing. Before I verbalize the words to you as a final blessing, I've been thinking a lot about posture lately. And one of the good postures for worship, for prayer, and for receiving a blessing is just simply this, open hands. Open hands ready to receive that which God has promised to give you. So as I declare these words over you, as you sing along with this song, if you'd like, practice this posture of open hands. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you his peace. Amen.